0: Welcome to part 2 of episode 17 on stroke with Dr. Dan Seltron and Dr. Walter Himmel. In this part of the episode, we're going to talk about antiplatelet choices for stroke, when to use heparin in the setting of stroke, and the challenging diagnosis of posterior circulation stroke and its unique management. We'll then present a case of embolic stroke and discuss the pros and cons of the newish medication dabigatran and what to do in the case of a dabigatrin overdose bleed. And then we'll talk about the newest in management of ICH, including when it's ICH associated with warfarin or an antiplatelet agent. Okay, so we've talked about all the basic supportive management. Let's talk a little bit about antiplatelet agents. In the TIA discussion that we had last year... We agreed that for TIA, a dose of 160 to 325 milligrams of ASA to chew should be given as soon as the CT confirms no bleed. And for patients with a true allergy to ASA or who have failed ASA, there's the option of giving clopidogrel, a loading dose of 300 milligrams followed by 75 milligrams daily, or an initial dose of 75 milligrams with continued overlap use of ASA for three or four days and the other option would be to switch to Agrinox BID, which has the disadvantage of commonly causing headache. Patients receiving TPA should not get any antiplatelet agents in the first 24 hours. We know that. But what about the patients who do not receive Lytics? Are the antiplatelet considerations for stroke the same as they are for TIA? Is there anything different than what we discussed for TIA?
1: Basically, it's really the same paradigm. There really wouldn't be very much difference in a stroke with fluctuating and evolving symptoms. I would probably load them with clopidogrel immediately. And if they were already on ASA, maintain the ASA, I might load them with ASA simultaneously in that context. But essentially, it's really the same as the TIA scenario.
0: So that's about antiplatelet agents. What about heparin? We had discussed with TIA that... It's a very rare event that we'd give heparin, and the emergency doctor should be in consultation with a neurologist in any situations which you might, for example, a suspected critical carotid stenosis or a tight basilar artery occlusion. Are there any patients with stroke that we should be considering heparin in?
1: Would be an extremely unusual scenario sometimes with a partial stroke in the posterior circulation with suspected or known significant vertebral or or basilar artery disease. Crescendo strokes like crescendo TIAs with recurrent events. Extracranial dissection would be probably the most common scenario. Other than those, there's really no evidence for use of heparin in acute stroke. And of course, heparin doesn't
2: lice the clot. Heparin prevents the next stroke, or the next clot from forming. So you're preventing a stroke and evolution in that rare situation.
0: Let's move on to our second case. This is a case of a 48-year-old man with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes who develops an abrupt onset of vertigo, nausea, and vomiting after getting out of bed in the morning with no other symptoms. He presented to the ED where he was diagnosed with benign positional vertigo. His vertigo continued to a mild extent and then worsened six days later with a brief episode of right arm numbness, right ear tinnitus, poor balance, and incoordination of the right hand that persisted. He returned to the emergency department, and despite a normal plain CT, he was admitted and found to have a high-grade stenosis in the right vertebral artery on MRI. His vertigo settled, but he continued to show clumsiness of his right arm. He was referred for consideration of endovascular repair and did well. Dr. Selchin, could you just give us your thoughts about this case?
1: Posterior circulation strokes are often the difficult ones because a lot of the stuff that we typically look for in a stroke isn't there. The assumption with vertigo without obvious findings is that it isn't stroke and that's where people very often get into trouble. I was saying before that in the patient who, when is thrombolizing, that's not the time to do the medical student neurological evaluation. This kind of patient is the one where you really want to do some very basic, simple things to evaluate the patient. One eye movements, if they've got bi-directional nystagmus, this is probably central. If they've got vertical nystagmus, it's almost certainly central. You want to see if the patient can walk, and you want to test for limb ataxia. Frankly, it's not usually that difficult in a 48-year-old. It's really difficult in a vertiginous 80-year-old who's sick as a dog, throwing up all over the place, and can't walk for a, a multitude of reasons. But especially with vertigo, what you really want to look at is what company it's keeping clinically both in terms of symptoms and in terms of findings.
0: Okay. Yeah, we had discussed this in our previous episode, of all the signs and symptoms to look out for. So I'll refer our listeners to episode six. Now, we had touched on this earlier about the ABCD2 score, not taking into consideration posterior circulation strokes. Docs rely on the NIH scale to evaluate and make treatment decisions in the ED for patients with suspected stroke. A high NIHSS score is a marker of infarct size, clinical severity, and long-term poor outcome. In patients with posterior circulation strokes, the NIHSS score isn't quite as accurate.
1: The NIHSS score is relatively insensitive in in uh, in the posterior circulation because it's largely, if you look at what gives you a big score, Uh, It's largely motor phenomena, and uh, if you have lateral infarcts in the posterior circulation that don't involve pyramidal tracts, you can have a devastating infarct with no weakness at all, a lateral medullary syndrome, for instance, where the patient may not be able to swallow, they may not be able to walk, pretty bad things, but they may have really quite a good NIH stroke scale score. So you're absolutely right. It's relatively insensitive. So the National Institutes
2: of Health stroke score goes from 0 to 42. And it rates 15 different items, particularly motor strength, confusion, level of alertness. And certainly with post relation scores, your NIHSS, your stroke score, can be 0 or 1 or 2 based on limit taxi and nothing else. So it's... Truly unhelpful. So you've got to go back to clinical assessment. Is the ataxia much worse than the vertigo? That's a problem. Is the patient over 70 at high risk? That's potentially a problem. Is the vertigo relentless and persisting? Could be a problem. The differential there, of course, is labyrinthitis versus a stroke. And of course, people with peripheral problems don't have numbness of their arm and their leg they don't become confused and disoriented. They may seem diffused and disoriented because they're puking their guts out, but they are not confused and disoriented. So if they have signs on their body, such as numbness, sweetness of the limb, or confusion and disorientation because of problems with their medial temporal lobes, those are alarming signs. Uh, also worth remembering, there's a very acute study out of Scandinavia. It's probably 10, 15 years old right now, looking at elderly patients vertigo and isolated persistent nystagmus. Vertigo and isolated persistent nystagmus. And that study showed it was a small study, but it showed one patient in four had a posterior circulation stroke and not prepa vertigo. So it's quite possible in the elderly patient, even with unidirectional nystagmus that persists, who's ataxic that person's having a stroke. Now what do you do? Let's face it these patients aren't going home. 75-year-old patient, 8-year-old patient who has ongoing nystagmus vertigo and can't walk is not going
1: home. Do these patients need an MRI? Yes. And they don't need a 45-minute MRI. They need an 8-minute MRI. All you really need here is a diffusion scan.
0: For docs who don't have easy access to MRI, we know that plain CT is notoriously poor for detecting cerebellar lesions. Is there an alternate to MRI?
1: Not really. Cerebellar isn't as bad, it's brainstem where CT is hopeless until sometimes days after the event and sometimes even at that point. Well, the alternative
2: is aspirin and monitoring and uh, be very, very, very sensitive to any worsening in their clinical state. Fortunately, many of these patients will do well, but at least a quarter will not.
0: Okay, so one, that brings up one of the common complications of cerebellar stroke is raised intracranial pressure, which can lead to obstructing hydrocephalus, which has been suggested as one of the worst markers of poor outcome. How can we tell in the ED, based on the history, physical, and plain CT, if a patient has raised ICP, and how should we manage their raised ICP in the emergency department?
2: Uh, my understanding is about 20% of people with cerebellar strokes will get significant cerebellar edema. And what are the signs? Well, it's the signs of increased intracranial pressure and the appearance of other neuro-neurological findings. Decreasing level of consciousness, headache, vomiting, the sudden appearance of other symptoms like loss of sensation, motor weakness, more decreasing level of consciousness, upgoing toes, all that sort of stuff. So in patients with posterior strokes who are deteriorating, you've got to suspect cerebellar edema, and then you're going to look at herniation, obstructive hydrocephalus, brainstem compression, herniation up towards the midbrain, and herniation down towards the brainstem upper cord.
0: Okay. And on the plain CT, what are the clues that we should look for? Well, for? these ones so you're going to
1: see. Uh, these ones aren't hard to see. This happens in the context of big hemispheric cerebellar infarcts. So you'll see the same sort of pattern on the CT that you'll see in the anterior circulation. You'll see increasing hypo-intensity. And what you'll see uh, as things progress is compression of the fourth ventricle and enlargement of the lateral ventricles. Those are the big issues. You also want to look for blood because sometimes hemorrhagic transformation in this particular context can be very important and can accelerate this process. Yeah, I'd say
2: you get familiar with looking at the fourth ventricle if you aren't comfortable with it find where the fourth ventricle is in addition to my other suggestions previously look at the fourth ventricle and ct scan after ct scan after
1: ct scan yeah and if you can't see it in an older person that's a big problem if it's compressed to the point where it's difficult to see that means the patient's in
0: trouble okay in what situations when it comes to ischemic strokes Should we be getting a neurosurgeon on the phone?
1: It's an interesting question. The big issue here is a little bit of foresight with large cerebellar infarcts because if the patient is getting into big trouble, that's a little late. I would say that large cerebellar strokes, there's signs of early edema and signs of ventricular compression. But the patient is wide awake and alert. That's when I would want to be talking to somebody about the patient, not at the point where they're heading south. It's too late, she's gone.
2: It's too late,
0: my baby's gone. So which strokes deserve consideration of neurosurgical decompression? Well, ventricular drainage and decompression of large cerebellar infarcts are uniformly recommended by all guidelines. Okay, moving on to our third case. Our third case is that of a 73-year-old woman with a history of hypertension and atrial fibrillation who presents to the ED with right-sided pure motor weakness but no cortical or sensory signs 10 hours after symptom onset. She was on hydrochlorothiazide for her hypertension and warfarin for her atrial fibrillation. The CT scan shows a small lacunar infarct in the left internal capsule with periventricular lucencies. Her INR is 1.7. The neurologist on call is consulted and the patient had carotid dopplers done that day, which did not show any carotid disease. Echocardiography showed a dilated right atrium with no other cause of cardioembolic stroke. Dr. Himmel, what are the embolic risk factors that we should be looking out for in patients who present with a suspected stroke?
2: Well, approximately a quarter of strokes are embolic, and it's the strokes that are embolic, about a half due to atrial fibrillation, and about half of other causes. So the first thing Mm -hmm. you look for is atrial fibrillation. And generally speaking, if you find it, and you think it's an embolic stroke, that's the most likely cause is the fibrillation. Now this case is quite complex because we know that even in the presence of atrial fibrillation, maybe 10, 15, 20% of strokes are not related to the fibrillation. So that's always something to keep in the back of your mind. The third thing is, let's say the patient has normal sinus rhythm. What do you do? Well, right off the bat, you would look for other disease that's easy to assess. Do they have a valve replacement? Hmm, very suggestive. It could be embolic. Have they had a recent myocardial infarction? And of course, do they have severe congestive heart failure? Severe heart failure, recent infarction, mechanical valves are all risks for embolic stroke.
0: In episode 6 on TIA, we discussed the CHAD score, which includes CHF, hypertension, age over 75, diabetes, and previous stroke. And we used the CHAD score to determine which patients should be on warfarin for prevention of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation, knowing that anticoagulation is so good with a 70% risk reduction in embolic events with warfarin for preventing stroke in patients with AFib, when should the patient with AFib who presents to the ED with a full stroke as opposed to a TIA receive anticoagulation? In other words, how do we minimize the chance of another stroke in the patient with AFib And how does this management change depending on whether the patient has been on warfarin at home for a stroke?
2: Well, there isn't great evidence for this one. So you're going to have to rely on expert opinion. And I select the opinion of many, many, many people. So here are the questions. Once you have thrown your major embolus and you have atrial fibrillation, what's your risk of a stroke in the next two or three or four days? Is it like 15 or 20%? And the answer is absolutely not. In fact, there is a strong experience which suggests once you've had your embolus, your chance of a stroke is quite low for the next two, three, four, or five days. You've thrown your embolus, the chance of a second one is low. The next thing to consider is what's the risk of hemorrhagic transformation. If your stroke is massively large, the risk is high. If your stroke is small, the risk is low. So you look at the stroke and I think you divide in three kinds of strokes. A small stroke, a medium stroke and a massive stroke. If you've had a massive stroke, you probably will defer anticoagulation with warfarin for four, five, six, seven days. Frankly, the risk of hemorrhagic transformation is high and the benefit is low. If you've had a very small stroke, maybe with a NIH stroke score of two or three, a bit of arm weakness, a very alert patient, a normal CT scan you probably could begin warfarin immediately. Not the 10 milligrams a day necessarily, but probably five milligrams a day or four with anticipation your INR will be therapeutic in about four or five days. If you've had a medium stroke, depending on how medium in the CT scan, you can begin your warfarin the first day or the second day and certainly before the third or fourth day with the expectation of having a therapeutic INR by day seven. And that's what most experts have spoken to suggest pretty consistently. But I think it's important to remember once you've thrown your embolism, and it's a big one, the risk of a second embolism early up front is low. The other thing to consider is it's perfectly acceptable to give aspirin right off the bat. And yes, you can give aspirin for two or three or four days concurrently with warfarin, and your INR is more than 1.8 or two. Because there's an immediate benefit to aspirin, the risk of aspirin is low, The Warfarin will take several days, five, six, or seven, to become therapeutic. If during Warfarin the INR is three or 2.5, what do you do? Well, if it's a large stroke or a medium-sized stroke, you might hold your Warfarin for two or three or four days because an INR of 2.5 or three in the presence of a large stroke is almost definitely more harmful than beneficial. If it's a very small stroke, With a normal CT or a first normal CT, and the INR is 1.9 or two, you probably could continue the warfarin. Same basic principles. Let's talk about it from an INR approach. With a major stroke, you don't want the INR above two in the first two or three days. With a minor stroke and a relatively normal CT, having an INR of two the first day is
0: probably acceptable. So that's all about warfarin and INRs in patients with strokes. Let's move on to dabigatran or dabigatran, however you'd like to pronounce it. Warfarin's been the standard oral anticoagulant for prevention of stroke in people with AFib for more than 50 years, but the need for INR monitoring, frequent dosage adjustments, multiple drug interactions, and a relatively narrow therapeutic window has spurred the development of new oral anticoagulants that work by different mechanisms. Dabigatran is an oral direct thrombin inhibitor that does not require any monitoring and reaches peak concentration at two hours. So we don't need to wait the two or three or four days before it becomes therapeutic as we do with warfarin. Dr. Selchin is going to address whether dabigatrin should replace warfarin for antithrombotic prophylaxis for patients with AFib, and then Dr. Himmel is going to tell us everything the ED doc needs to know about dabigatrin.
1: The answer to the first question is it depends on the patient. There are patients who've been on warfarin for years required very little by way of dose adjustments are stable and have no problems and I don't see any reason for changing that patient to a different agent the problem with warfarin isn't lack of efficacy The problem is, uh, is essentially twofold one is that large numbers of patients who should be treated aren't treated at all because the drug is too much of a pain in the butt for the patient the physician or both. So there are estimates that under 50% of patients who are appropriate for treatment with warfarin are actually treated. Uh, so there's a huge treatment gap there. The other issue is that there are a large number of patients uh, that certainly emergency room doctors will recognize who will be treated with warfarin and uh, have INRs way out of range, usually low, occasionally high. And those patients, the low may as well not be on the treatment, and the higher, obviously, it increased the risk of bleeding. So I think we have to look at which patient group we're talking about. If we're talking about patients who can't or won't tolerate warfarin, where blood testing is impractical for any one of, uh, of a number of reasons, those patients, it makes a lot of sense if they're high-risk patients to be on a drug like the bigotran, where the monitoring is easier and the use of the drug is easier. Now, bigotran is not without pitfalls. If you're working in the emergency room, there are two huge pitfalls. One is that you don't really have any good way of knowing whether the patient is taking the drug, which can be certainly in the acute stroke context is a very important consideration. Two, we don't at this point have an effective antidote for the drug.
0: So patients already taking warfarin with excellent INR control have little to gain by switching to dabigatran. Where dabigatran has an advantage is in the patients whose INR is poorly controlled within the 2 to 3 INR range. So Dr. Himmel, could you just run through for us how effective dabigatran is compared to warfarin in terms of prevention of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation?
2: It's effective, but I, I have to start by saying the following... Every time I had a great idea, my dad's comment was, we'll see. And he always just to tell me that your greatest strength is your greatest weakness, and your greatest weakness is your greatest strength. So as far as the bigotran concerned, we will see. I haven't got a clue how it's going to turn out. We'll know in about five years' time, I would think. Secondly, the bigotran's greatest strength is its greatest weakness. The half-life is about 12 to 14 hours. You know what compliance is like. It is crappy. If you miss your dabigatran for one or two days, your protection with the bigotran is probably rapidly approaching zero. So while it is true that patients on warfarin often have the INR therapeutic only 50% of the time, it may also be true that if you're not very compliant, people on the dabigatran may only be therapeutic 50% of the time and you'll never know it. So before we think the bigotran is the best thing in the world and warfarin is the worst, will see and your biggest strength the lack of monitoring can be your biggest weakness these patients must be told in return for not being monitoring monitored you've got to be compliant 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 so the bigotrans thrombin agent it reaches its peak plasma level in about two hours so it's effective right off the bat no use for heparin with it consistently its excretion is 80 percent renal now, what does that mean? Well, that means if your creatinine clearance is under thirty cc's per hour, the bigotran is absolutely contraindicated. It also means if your creatinine clearance, based on the studies I've read, is between thirty and fifty cc's, the area under the curve increases three hundred percent. So, at levels between thirty and fifty cc's creatinine clearance, you may want to use the lower dose, of the bigotran.
1: One has to be very cautious, especially in elderly patients who may be perfectly fine, then get a flu-like illness, for example, get dehydrated, have a change in renal function, and can have catastrophic events on this kind of agent.
0: So the patient who might not have pre-existing renal failure, who then has a bad gastroenteritis or something, gets very dehydrated, their creatin goes through the ceiling, and if they're on dabigatrin, they can really bleed out because, as Dr. Himmel was saying, it is renally excreted. So we've got to be really careful about patients with renal failure, whether it's chronic or acute, in patients on dabigatrin. I also want to point out right off the bat,
2: there's really no way of monitoring the bigotran. The bigotran does raise prothrauma level, but not at therapeutic levels. The Bigotran does raise activated PTT. However, it's not linear and it plateaus. So activated PTT may be a gross indicator that you're taking the Bigotran, it's not reliable. How effective is the Bigotran? Well, the Bigotran has two doses, 110 milligrams twice a day and 150 milligrams twice a day. Both doses are available in Canada. In the States, only the 150 dose was made available for very complex reasons. The risk of embolism, all comers with atrial fibrillation, is about, what, 5-6% a year. If you're taking warfarin, the risk dropped to 1.69%. That was fantastic.
1: In the RELIES study? In the RELY study. RELY study.
2: If mm-hmm. you're taking the bigotran, the risk dropped to 1.1% or 1.5% depending if you're taking the big dose or the low dose. So the risk of embolism was improved dramatically. The bottom line is, if you're taking low dose to bigotran, the improvement is equal to Coumadin. If you're taking high dose to bigotran, the improvement in risk is slightly better than Coumadin. How about the risk of major bleeds? What's the bottom line? High dose to bigotran has the same bleeding risk as warfarin with slightly better benefit in protection from embolism. Low risk, the bigotran, has a slightly lower risk of bleeding than warfarin, but equal protection. And I think that's the bottom line. There's one major advantage to bigotran worth remembering. That's intracranial hemorrhage. We can treat GI hemorrhage. We can treat bruising. We can treat epistaxis. It's a bit of a drag, as every doctor knows. Like, it's a drag, epistaxis. But we can treat it. Intracranial hemorrhage, hmm... That's a different issue. So what's the risk of intracranial hemorrhage from warfarin? We know the figures are all over the map. 0.3%, 0.5%, 1%, people over 80, way higher perhaps. But in this study, here are the figures, and this is really worth noting. Risk of intracranial hemorrhage, 0.74% per year. That's not bad. That's with warfarin. Risk of intracranial bleeding with high-dose dabigatran, 0.3%. 0.3%. That's fantastic. The absolute risk reduction is only about 0.5. The relative risk reduction is 50%. But who wants to get an intracranial hemorrhage? High dose dabigatran with increased benefit gives you way less intracranial hemorrhages. Fantastic. How about low dose bigotran? The risk of intracranial hemorrhage was 0.23%. That is fantastic. How about GI hemorrhaging? In regards to GI hemorrhaging, the risk of Dabigatran was slightly more than warfarin. So the trade-off is total bleeding, the same as warfarin, or slightly less, depending on your dose. Intracranial bleeding, consistently
0: less. And GI hemorrhage, clearly more. And that's the uh, bottom line. So the bottom line with Dabigatran is that it is at least as good as warfarin in preventing stroke in patients with AFib. That it has a lower rate of intracranial hemorrhage but in exchange, it has a slightly higher rate of GI bleeding.
2: One other caveat, the risk of myocardial infarction was slightly increased. We know warfarin, because it deals with factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, and the entire coagulation cascade has clear benefits in reducing the risk of myocardial infarction. The bigger trend does not have that benefit. So you've got a patient with significant coronary artery disease unstable angina who requires anticoagulation, you might give the edge, in that case, to warfarin.
0: For emergency doctors, the main problem with dabigatrin will likely be, and we'll see this, I'm sure, more and more, is that there's no specific antidote, as you mentioned, Dr. Selchin, for dabigatrin, and no one really knows what to do with these patients who present with a bleed. Dr. Himmel, what are your treatment recommendations if you were faced with a patient with an intracranial bleed secondary to dabigatrin. The fact of it is,
2: there is really no demonstrated antidote either in theory or in practice. Now what I've read suggests the following, if you've got a life-threatening hemorrhage, the treatment is basically dialysis. And from what I understand, you can dialyze about 60% of your dabigatran, often approximately two or three hours. So if you're in a place where you can get dialysis and you have a life-threatening bleed, that's probably your best option. Other antidotes? In my opinion, probably not. Would use recombinant factor 7 in this situation? Extraordinarily risky, ill-advised. I would not use it. No proven benefit and significant risk. In fact, reviews in recombinant factor 7 show thrombotic risks of 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 percent, and not in the veins. You're talking arteries here. You're talking myocardial infarction and stroke. Would I use cryoprecipitate? Well, you could argue cryoprecipitate may play a role. Now, of course, cryoprecipitate gives you fibrinogen. We're dealing with antithrombin drug. Your thrombin isn't very effective. Your fibrinogen may not be effective. But if you want to use some physiological antidote, which has absolutely zero evidence, I would say don't use the common factor 7. Do not use octoplex, otherwise known as prothrombin complex concentrates. If you have to use something, consider using cryoprecipitate to give the patient fibrinogen.
0: So the bottom line with dabigatran related major serious hemorrhage is you can try cryoprecipitate. Probably won't work, but it might. And get your nephrologist on the phone to get into the dialysis unit fast and if a patient's taken an acute intentional overdose of dabigatrin then there is a role for activated charcoal which dr himmel will explain to us the
2: bigotran is extremely acidic it'll be absorbed very well to activated charcoal so within two a couple of hours absolutely use it in fact this is one situation where i might use it even more than two hours and here's the reason the bigotran is quite acidic it's quite irritating the stomach. It may sit in the stomach longer than other drugs. And listen, it is risky. And activated charcoal is not that risky. I'd probably give activated charcoal two or three or maybe even four hours. No evidence for this whatsoever. But we will be seeing overdoses of Vicatran, I am sure. Activated charcoal is extremely rational.
0: Okay, let's move on to our fourth case. Our fourth case is that of a sixty-two year old retired police officer. Who's sitting with his wife at a restaurant drinking a beer in the late afternoon when he suddenly develops a severe headache, nausea, and left arm and leg weakness? He has a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia. He's a 50 pack year smoker and reports drinking five beers daily. He takes a daily aspirin in addition to his other medication. Upon arrival in the ED, his vital signs are normal except for a blood pressure of 200 on 120. He's able to answer questions, but appears sleepy. His serum glucose by finger stick is normal, and the cardiac monitor shows normal sinus rhythm with inverted T waves in the precordial leads. His plain CT of the head showed a large right thalamic hemorrhage. Dr. Himmel, first, what's the classic presentation of spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage? And second, how good are we at determining whether a patient has an intracranial hemorrhage as opposed to an ischemic stroke based on the presentation?
2: Well as usual classic is not common and common is not classic and CTs have changed everything. In the good old days before CT if you had a sudden onset of a horrible headache, a rapidly decreasing level of consciousness, began vomiting like crazy, odds are you'd be diagnosed to being risk of having an intracranial hemorrhage and I think with big intracranial hemorrhages these things happen. Bound you get a headache then you start to vomit because of intracranial pressure, and then you have decreased level of consciousness. That's the classical presentation. But of course, with smaller hemorrhages, and many are, they can present exactly like an ischemic stroke. So the fact of it is, why should every patient with ischemic stroke have a CT scan? Because the classical presentation of ICH is a positive CT scan, unless it's massive.
1: Couldn't agree more. I think the best stroke doctor in the world... They can't tell the difference between a small thalamic hemorrhage and a small thalamic infarct.
0: And so sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference based on the presentation. Sometimes if it's a classic presentation, we can tell the difference. Most of us know that intracerebral hemorrhages are generally worse than ischemic strokes. Can you just give us some numbers on how much worse the prognosis is for intracranial hemorrhage in general than it is from ischemic stroke?
1: Mortality with intracerebral hemorrhage is about three times the mortality of ischemic stroke.
0: And what is that attributed to?
1: Mass effect typically from hemorrhage. People tend to die from increased intracranial pressure and mass effect with, uh, with large hemorrhages. That can happen with large ischemic strokes, but it's a much less common occurrence.
0: Okay. So Unlike an ischemic stroke, a lot of the mortality is associated with the effects of the hemorrhage itself on the rest of the brain, as opposed to ischemic stroke, which the mortality is more associated with other complications like aspiration and sepsis. Okay. And so that that leads me nicely into the next point, which is we now know that about 40% of patients with intracranial hemorrhage have significant hematoma growth in the first few hours after their bleed starts. And so time is of the essence as far as doing everything you can to minimize that hematoma expansion. Can you review for us the ED principles of supportive care for patients with intracranial hemorrhage with this idea of early hematoma expansion in mind?
2: The principles here are not that different from ischemic stroke, with a couple of modifications of course. The major principle here is protect the patient's physiology. Start with ABC airway and breathing. Since people with ICHs tend to have decreased level of consciousness, the risk of not being able to protect their airway and breathe appropriately is extremely high, much more than with ischemic strokes. These patients may require intubation and often do particularly The hemorrhage is large, and of course, the glass glaucoma scale is under 8.
0: And my understanding is, and I've seen this in practice many times, is even if they come in with a GCS of 14 or 15, a lot of them end up deteriorating quite rapidly. They absolutely do. So we should have a low threshold for intubation. intubation. Mm -hmm.
2: But keep in mind, during the intubation process, you don't want to drop your pressure to 100 over 40, because cerebral perfusion is important so if you're going to use propofol make sure this patient is well hydrated and if you're going to use otomidate hypotension may be a bit less of a problem but you certainly want to avoid profound hypotension during intubation what if they don't require intubation how do you position the patient well you position them with their head slightly elevated to about 30 degrees what's the purpose of this twofold Generally speaking, number one, to decrease cerebral edema, and number two, to prevent aspiration. Now certainly, if the patient has a glaucoma scale of 3 or 4, and perfusion pressure to the brain is different matter, this may be inappropriate. But I think in a patient who is awake and protecting your airway, mild elevation of the head of the bed is probably a good idea. The other detail, which may appear trivial but is really essential, is the head should be in the midline. The head turned all the way to the left, all the way to the right is a head which may compress the internal jugular vein. The head's got to be in the midline while it's elevated. Does the patient require sedation? If a patient is agitated and thrashing about, they may require sedation and they may require early intubation. Absolutely check the abdomen for extended bladder. That's not very good for blood pressure either. Temperature will really be an issue to the eMERGE doctor in the department because these patients come in very, very acutely. But temperature clearly is harmful and as the device goes with ischemic stroke the same advice applies to hemorrhagic stroke. Now how about blood pressure? Because this is going to come up time and time again and I think you've got to have a clearer concept of what to do. So there's the current guidelines and the research. I will stick with the current guidelines. So the numbers are 150, 130 and 110. So that sounds we, familiar. That's right. <laughs> so we know in a ischemic stroke, if your pressure is 180 over 105, which means a MAP of 130, that's perfectly reasonable. What's the ideal mean arterial pressure in somebody with a hemorrhagic stroke? The guidelines suggest in a very simple sense that if the blood pressure is less than 180 over 105. If your pressure is less than 180 over 105, you have two choices. You can leave it at that point briefly, or what most neurosurgeons recommend is a slight reduction of about 10, 15% at the most. And most people will quote that in the patient who is relatively awake, and if you're comfortable that perfusion pressure is reasonable, you should lower the pressure to approximately 160 over 90, which is a map of 110. So in an awake patient, Where cerebral perfusion is not a major concern, a pressure of 160 over 90, which is a map of 110, is acceptable. However, if your patient is deeply unconscious, has a Coma scale of 4 or 5, it's very tough to know what to do, but consider leaving their pressure a little higher, up to, but not above, 180 over 105. And here's the reason. If your patient has a decreased level of consciousness that's dramatic and you lower their pressure significantly to the ideal 160 over 90 you're at risk of causing what significantly impaired cerebral perfusion. Now in the ideal world patients with decreased level of consciousness and hypertension should have a monitoring device applied to their brain and then have their intracranial pressure measured. In the peripheral hospital this is absolutely impossible so what would I do if their patient's pressure was 180 over 105 and they had a significantly decreased level of consciousness? i call a neurosurgeon and say the person's Coma scale is 4. One to leave their pressure 180 over 105 or get it down to 160 over 90. This would require a bit of discussion. But certainly anything above 180 over 105 should be lowered 10 or and 15% at the most.
0: And Dr. Himmel, you had mentioned raising the head of the bed 30 degrees to help prevent raised intracranial pressure. What else should we consider doing for patients who we suspect have raised intracranial pressure with an intracranial hemorrhage?
2: Well, it sort of depends. I won't get to the numbers, but I will say this. If your patient is unconscious, has a GCS of 6, 7, 8, 5, 4, that person clearly has a problem with intracranial pressure that's very high and impaired Superfusion. Super this patient will be intubated undoubtedly. What should her PCO2 be? You don't want to excessively hyperventilate these patients. We know that slight hyperventilation will decrease the perfusion pressure. So slight hyperventilation may decrease the pressure the brain experience in the presence of hypertension, but excessive hyperventilation is undoubtedly harmful. Now what if you're in a small peripheral hospital and the patient's going downhill? And you've intubated them, and their PCO2 is 35. And you have that surgeon on the phone. What can you do? It's reasonable in this situation to give mannitol, 0.5 to 1 gram per kilogram, and then six hours later another smaller dose. But of course, this is a temporizing measure. It's only used to give you hours of time, and in discussion with a neurosurgeon.
0: So if your patient is going down the tubes, in other words, they're having a decreased level of consciousness, they may be coning, you can hyperventilate the patient, but only to a PCO2 of 35, just to buy you enough time to get the patient to the OR. The other question that comes up is whether these patients should be getting anticonvulsants to prevent seizures. The incidence of clinical seizures within the first two weeks after ICH has been reported to range from about 3% to 17% with the majority occurring at or near onset. However, the AHA guidelines recommend that prophylactic anticonvulsant medication should not be used in this setting. They suggest that only clinical seizures, or EEG seizures in patients with a change in mental status, should be treated with antiepileptic drugs. Dr. Selchin... I've always found it very difficult myself when I'm speaking to the neurosurgeon to sound like I'm educated in knowing which patients will require surgery and which patients might not require surgery. Can you please go through for us the different causes of intracranial hemorrhage and which causes and types of intracranial hemorrhages that we see on the CAT scan are the ones that are most likely to require neurosurgery?
1: In terms of actual hematoma extraction or hematoma evacuation, there is no good clinical trial data that suggests that patients with acute intracerebral hemorrhages benefit from that kind of surgery. The most recent trials, the I-STITCH trials, suggest that there's really no significant difference in terms of outcomes between patients who are operated on and patients who are managed conservatively, with a possible exception of patients with very superficial hemorrhages that are within a centimeter of cortical surface, that there's a strong trend suggests that those patients may benefit from surgery, though there weren't that many in the study. So the bottom line in terms of uh, actual major surgery, there's very little indication. There is an indication in some patients, particularly those with posterior fossa bleeds for uh, ventricular drains, to give time by relieving intracranial pressure through direct drainage.
0: What about the patients who have had a massive intracerebral hemorrhage, who you know that the prognosis is gonna be very poor? What kind of factors should we take into account when deciding whether to even call the neurosurgeon or not, whether this patient should require any treatment? Is there a role for prognostication in the emergency department for patients with intracranial hemorrhage, in other words. Well,
1: Prognostication is actually relatively simple in these patients. There's a, Again, there's a linear connection between hematoma volume and mortality in intracerebral hemorrhage. You get hemorrhage volume beyond 40 ml, the mortality rate starts to increase. You get above 60 ml, it bumps up to close to 80%. So size of hematoma is a is really a very clear prognostic factor in terms of intervention all of the usual issues come into play age the likelihood of decent outcome in an elderly person with a large hematoma borders on zero so age is an important consideration prior status status family wishes, and all of the usual factors that we deal with on a daily basis. Mm
0: -hmm. And how about the cause of the intracerebral hemorrhage? If the cause is likely to be due to hypertension, or if it's likely to be due to cocaine or an AVM, do do the causes of the intracranial hemorrhage come into play when we're deciding prognostication and treatment?
1: They come into play in in a couple of respects. One is anatomy. Superficial hemorrhages are much more likely to be amenable to early neurosurgical intervention. Neurosurgeons generally have very little interest in intervention with deep hemorrhages in the thalamus or in the basal ganglia, so typical hypertensive hemorrhages. Low-bar hemorrhages related to AVMs, potentially cocaine, vasculitis, and amyloid angiopathy are much more amenable to surgical intervention. In part because the surgery is easier and because there's much less destruction involved in the process of going after the clot.
0: I see. So so the hypertensive bleeds tend to be the deep brain ones, thalamus, and those are the ones that tend to not be amenable to surgery. Whereas amyloid angiopathy in the elderly, cocaine, AVMs... Tend to
1: be more superficial, though not always and okay. are, are more likely to at least attract a neurosurgeon's interest.
2: Yeah, I just have some practical advice that I learned the hard way. If the patient's prognosis is zero for survival, and you're convinced they're going to die, and they're in a the ventilator, and you take the patient off the vent, don't tell the family the patient's going to die in the next 5 <laughs> or 10 minutes, which I once did. In fact, I've done it a couple of times when I was young and foolish. <laughs> These patients can continue to breathe and live for one or two or three or four days. So it's very embarrassing to take the patient out of the vent, have the patient waiting them to die next five minutes, and the next day they're still breathing. So I tell my patient's family, not my patient but their family, the chance for survival is probably zero. If we agree to take them out of the vent later, I want you to understand, they may take a day or two or three days to die. The other question that comes up, and this is extremely important to the nurse doctor, is to take them off the vent, it does not mean to remove the endocrachial tube. If you remove the endocrachial tube and emerge, and the GCS is three, the respiratory sounds you will hear are absolutely horrible. The patient dies a gurgling death. Consider discussing it with the family, taking the patient out the ventilator, and leaving the endocrachial tube in place. It's a much more pleasant way to go, not for the patient, but for the family.
0: Dr. Selton, traditionally we've been taught that plain CT is better than MRI in detecting hemorrhage. However, recently I've come to understand that MRI is as sensitive as plain CT for detection of acute blood and is more sensitive for identifying prior hemorrhage. The other advantage of MRI is that it's better at picking up structural lesions like tumors, for example, that might be the cause of the bleed from a practical perspective First, is this correct that MRI is as good as CT in picking up bleeds? And secondly, should we be using this information, if it is true, in making our radiologic decisions?
1: As Dr. Himmel would say, it depends. So it depends on which MR sequences get done as a routine in your institution. There are MR sequences, so routine, flare, and T2 imaging is relatively insensitive to hemorrhage. If susceptibility-weighted image is uh, is part of the routine in your institution, it's quite sensitive to hemorrhage. The bottom line is in the acute setting and the vast majority of places, uh, CT is going to remain the modality of choice. MRI typically is a follow-up modality for two purposes. One, in cases of low-bar hemorrhage, as uh, you've suggested in the question, to see if there is evidence of previous microhemorrhages to which CT is completely insensitive, and which may give some hints about the important diagnoses like amyloid. Two is if we're looking for a mass or a tumor or some other underlying cause, though typically, in the acute context, CT is completely insensitive, and MR is largely insensitive in terms of looking for tumors where there's a lot of blood. The other question of interest in imaging an acute hemorrhage is whether we should be doing CT angiograms in this context. There's a very interesting literature in the context of hypertensive hemorrhages in particular about something called a spot sign, which we were talking earlier about the 35 to 40% of intracerebral hemorrhages that will expand in the first few hours. This spot sign, which you see with contrast enhancement, appears to be a very sensitive indicator in terms of which hematomas are likely to expand. And there's now a large Canadian study which is being initiated to see if treatment actually with factor seven in patients with positive spot signs will be a therapeutic benefit. We already know that factor seven is an effective treatment for CT scans. You can reduce hematoma expansion measured by CT with factor seven. What we haven't demonstrated is that you can actually improve clinical outcome. So there's a biological effect but the phase 3 trial of factor 7 didn't show benefit in terms of clinical outcome, we're hoping that if we select specifically the patients who are at very high risk for hematoma expansion, then we may actually have a a correlate between the biological effect and the clinical effect of factor 7.
0: Stay tuned. The more we find out about these things, the more likely we can make a huge difference in patients who have intracranial hemorrhage. So far, we've been talking about intracranial hemorrhage on patients who are not on warfarin. It's a whole different beast with a patient who's on warfarin, one that the prognosis is much worse, but also that these are the patients that we can actually do more for in terms of reversing the warfarin. Dr. Himmel, could you run us through what the therapeutic options in the EDR for warfarin-associated intracranial hemorrhage? And then we can talk about antiplatelet associated intracranial sure. hemorrhage.
2: Well, you have
0: to do two things.
2: The first thing you have to do is replace the clotting factors. And the second thing you have to do is make sure once you replace them, they stay up. So, no matter what you use to increase the clotting factors, whether it's prothrombin complex concentrates or fresh frozen plasma, remember you always have to give vitamin K you always have to give vitamin K. So your options are vitamin K plus one of either fresh frozen plasma or prothrombin complex concentrates, referred to from now on as PCC. What's the dose of vitamin K? Five to 10 milligrams, either one's fine. I'll probably use 10. How do you give it? Intravenously. period. It's the only way in this situation. Is there a risk of anaphylaxis? The risk of anaphylaxis to vitamin K is extraordinarily low. Anaphylactoid reactions are commoner. True anaphylaxis is low. There's two studies, one in the neurologic literature and one in the algae literature. True anaphylaxis occurs with a risk of approximately three in 10,000. That's less than ceftriaxone. Everybody listening to this tape has given ceftriaxone. I suspect, to patients. Don't be afraid to give vitamin K. The dose is five to 10 milligrams. How quickly do you give it? No more than a milligram per minute. In plain words, you're gonna get 10 milligrams over about 15 minutes. 10 milligrams in 25 to 50 cc's of saline, give them over 15 to 20 minutes, period. If the patient flushes, gets reactions like that, stop it for a moment, give some Benadryl, and begin again at even a lower pace. So what's the best way to reverse the INR? FFP or PCC? And the answer is obviously PCC. Why is that? If your INR is four, you've got 10% coagulation factors. If your INR is 1.5, you've got 40%. To go from INR of four to 1.5, which is your goal, 1.5 is your goal, you've got to get about six units of fresh, frozen plasma. An hour to get the fresh, frozen plasma? A liter and a half of fluid in the person who's probably got cerebral edema? That's a real difficult chore. And furthermore, what is the INR of fresh, frozen plasma? It's somewhere between 1.3 and 1.5. Six units of fresh, frozen plasma may not be sufficient. In fact, it often isn't. Then you're going to get 8 units of fresh frozen plasma. Well, forget it. What is Octoplex? Octoplex is the Canadian version of prothrombin complex concentrates. What does it have? Factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. What is does lower? Factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. That's why it's designed that way. What else does Octoplex have? It has protein S and protein C. What is protein S and protein C? They're anticoagulants. The theory is you're giving a balanced solution of 2, 7, 9, and 10, and protein S and protein C. So we should be calling it Sextaplex. That's never gonna work. We call it Octaplex. And the company of course is Octapharm. And Octaplex also has a bit of heparin in it. Does that make sense? Well, just a bit of heparin. And why do they have heparin? To decrease the risk of thrombosis. Now, what's the dose of Octoplex? Every hospital has their own protocol. I won't go through the figures in detail, but I'll mention something. Doses between 1,000 units and 2,000 units was two approaches. Approach number one, give 20 units per kilogram. Give 20 units per kilogram to all patients. That's about 1,500 units in the average adult patient. That's approach number one. Approach number two, and this is often used in Toronto, was the following. You're either going to give 1,000 units, or you're going to give 2,000 units. Either 1,000 or 2,000. If your INR is more than 4, or you weigh more than 90 kilograms, give 2,000 units of Octoplex. If your INR is less than 4, and you weigh less than 90 kilograms, give 1,000 units. And that's the bottom line. How quickly does it take to get Octoplex? 5 to 10 minutes. You get the powder... The nurse mixes it up. How quickly do you give it? Over about 15 minutes. How long does it take for Octoplex to have its maximum effect to decreasing INR? Octoplex will decrease your INR in about five minutes. When do you measure your INR? You measure your INR between five and 10 minutes after you give Octoplex. Give the Octoplex and the dose your hospital likes, and measure INR virtually immediately. If it's not adequately corrected to 1.5, give more octoplex. If it is, measure INR again in approximately 6 hours. Why is that? Because the half-life of Factor 7 is 7 hours. Pretty cool, eh? Factor <laughs> 7, 7 hours. So you're going to measure it again in about 6 or 7 hours.
0: For a patient that comes in with a warfarin-associated intracranial hemorrhage, do we need to wait for the INR before we give PCCs? Actually, I had a 50-year-old businessman who was walking along and slipped and bonked his head on the sidewalk, and he had a subdural hemorrhage, and he was on warfarin, and I would octoplex right away before I even got the INR back, and the neurosurgeon seemed to be happy with that.
2: Well, if you're going to use fresh frozen plasma, it doesn't really matter, because by the time they get it and give it, it's been so many hours, you may as well wait for the INR. Octoplex is different. Octoplex works immediately. You could make a very, very good argument that if your patient had a head injury that wouldn't give a hemorrhage to most people and that patient is on Coumadin, the chance of having an INR more than 1.5 is extraordinarily good. I think it would be perfectly reasonable to give Octoplex. You may only want to give a thousand units and wait after that. what's Mm -hmm. the reason for that? When does most expansion occur? Early, When is most of the benefit early? I think it's reasonable to go ahead and give it. I also should point out after your head injury, your ICH can occur two hours later, a day later, three days later, five days later, 10 days later. If someone came to your department with a whack to the head and a CT scan of their head and the CT was normal, and they come back three days later with increasing headaches and nausea, the first thing i are going to get is a CT scan. For the patient on Warfarin. Absolutely. Yeah. If they come back four days later, and they've got more of a headache and more nausea and vomiting, you'll get a CT scan again. Mm-hmm. The intracranial hemorrhage or the subdural can be delayed many, many days. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've read reports up to two weeks after the original head injury. Keep a very open mind to bleeds and re-bleeds and delayed bleeds for patients on warfarin of course
0: okay so we've talked about reversing warfarin induced intracranial bleeds what about the patient who's on let's say clopidogrel and aspirin and they have an intracranial bleed the half-life of aspirin is probably about 15 to 20
2: minutes the half-life of impaired platelets of course is many 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 days so if you're on aspirin alone and you have an intracranial bleed particularly after trauma you can make a very good argument for giving a pool of platelets because you've got impaired platelets. So That is quite rational. Now, Plavix, I've read completely contrary opinions. One opinion I've read is the following. Plavix has a fairly long half-life. Your platelets are impaired for a long time. If you give platelets, they'll be inactivated by the Plavix in your blood. So no point giving platelets. I've read other comments, particularly in a journal called Clinics in Hematology and Ecology, which says that Plavix really isn't the active drug. It's the metabolite of Plavix. And that metabolite has a much shorter half-life. So in patients on Plavix, it's reasonable to give one or two pools of platelets to control bleeding. So I really don't know the answer. Generally speaking, when I've spoken to Canadian neurosurgeons, they haven't been too impressed by the use of platelets. On the other hand, a few times I've spoken to American neurosurgeons, they all tell me to give platelets. So what I do, I'm on the phone, no neurosurgeon anywhere, patient aspirin alone, significant bleed, I'd probably give a pool of platelets.
0: On Plavix, I don't know what I would do. Is there any downside of giving platelets in this situation?
2: Yeah, so the downside is the same as it goes with all transfusions. There's a risk of infection, there's a risk of fever and so sure. forth. You know, quite frankly, I'll admit them publicly, I'm personally taking aspirin and Plavix and have been for about a year now. If I smashed my head, I had nausea and vomiting, and I came to emerge, I had subarachnoid blood, but I want platelets, you bet I would want platelets. The risk of infection, one in 400,000. The risk of more bleeding, I have no interest in more bleeding I'll take the platelets. I've given platelets to people with liver disease. I've given platelets to people from oncology practices. If it's my brain, I'm aspirin, Plavix. The less blood, the better. Give me the platelets. Two pools, please.
0: There's currently an ongoing trial which is yet to publish any results called the Platelet Transfusion in Cerebral Hemorrhage Trial, or the PATCH study. It's a prospective randomized multicenter trial which is looking at platelet transfusion effect on hematoma expansion when given within 6 hours, and looking at 3-month functional outcome in ICH patients who are on antiplatelet drugs like ASA and clopidogrel. So hopefully we'll have an evidence-based answer soon when it comes to platelet transfusions in ICH patients who are on antiplatelet agents. So here's a quick review of ICH. Just as in ischemic stroke, time is brain, and preventing early hematoma expansion is a key concept in the management of ICH patients in the ED. Many patients with ICH require early supportive care, which often includes intubation, blood pressure management, glucose control, and treatment of raised ICP. This general medical management plays an important role in minimizing secondary injury. Correction of coagulopathies need to be performed as fast as possible, with IV vitamin K and PCCs preferably, over IV vitamin K with fresh frozen plasma. Some patients, including those with cerebellar bleeds and those with cerebral breeds that are within 1 centimeter of the cortical surface, may benefit from surgery. So involve your neurosurgeons early. And for this month's quote of the month, we've got one from Benjamin Franklin. Without continual growth and progress, such words as improvement, achievement, and success have no meaning. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode of Emergency Medicine Cases. I'm really excited about the next episode coming up on Emergency Medicine Cases, That's going to be on emergency bedside ultrasound because for the first time, we're going to have a panel of four or five experts. I figured I'd do this because things are changing so fast and there's so many different opinions and controversies in this subject that having a panel of four or five experts will really bring to light all the different opinions and new things happening in this amazing subject. So until next time, take it easy.